seat. Let me ask you a question while you're grabbing your Bibles and finding Matthew chapter 9. If Jesus really is king, what on earth is he accomplishing? So we've been, you know, Jesus is king. That's sort of the premise of the, of the, that is the premise of the gospel of Matthew. It's the premise of our series we're in on the kingdom of heaven. But if Jesus is really king, what on earth is he accomplishing? Because we look around and I'm like, whoa. So what on earth is he accomplishing? He's defeating his enemies one by one to put them under his feet. Good. And the last enemy he will defeat is death. death. He's already defeated it personally when he rose again. But he is defeating it for each of us as well. Good. What else is he doing? What's that? Building his church. church. He says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we have sometimes in the church we think that that's some sort of a defensive posture. It's an offensive posture. The gates are around hell, not the church. Right? So, so we are to take the fight to the enemy because we are on the side of the king. What else? Again, a word, I would say here's what he's accomplishing restoration. He's already redeemed. God's story from the beginning is creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Now, why ask the question, though? Like, why ask the question, what is he accomplishing? Because we can look around, especially as Americans, especially in the West, especially as we watch 20 or 40 million people over the last 20 years leave the church in America alone, and it can feel like the gospel is losing. Because, it, because churches are getting smaller or we hear about a pastor who is failing or a church that has closed its doors and is now, some, is now a bar or something else in some city somewhere. Like we, we hear these stories and we think, man, maybe the gospel is failing. Or maybe you have friends and family members who have professed faith in Christ, people that were in this church or the church you came from or just in your past, and, and they are now saying, well, you know what, I'm not really following Jesus anymore because, because it just didn't really work for for me. Like that's a very real feeling. And so we look around at the world and we go, like what is he accomplishing? And and we have to remind ourselves that he is the king. Guys, with everything that's going on in our and and so as we were praying about as a as a leadership team, like what do we go through, what are we going to teach on next after we finished Romans and we're like, okay, 2024 is certainly going to be an interesting year. Right, it already started last summer when we started the Matthew series with just the political tension and the divisiveness and the, and the tribalism that is America today. And we're like, okay, so do we, do we teach some stuff about how to deal with those problems? How to see, how to, how to vote biblically? How to see um, like the, the culture for what it is? How to, how to, in the midst of all of this negativism, how, do, do, we, do we do series on like how to, how, how to cultivate a positive thought life and all we could think about was the only thing that will accomplish all of those things that will teach us to vote biblically that will teach us to have a positive prayer life is if we just keep putting Jesus in front of us because Jesus is better he just is and he's the answer to all of it so we as a leadership team we said well Matthew is a great place to go because it shows Jesus as king and so what we've been looking at is this idea of so we've seen Jesus as um, he is the power, like the, the, we, different, um, 
different views of Christ. And so we started out in, in Matthew chapter, in the first few chapters of Matthew and talked about how, how it was like the pronouncement, the king is coming and his birth. And then we talked about um, the preparation of the king and how he had to be baptized, how he went into the wilderness, tempted by the devil, that was preparing him for his ministry. Then we spent a long time in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 talking about the preaching of the king. And now we're in this part about the power of the king. And we're talking about how we saw all, two weeks ago we taught on, I talked about how he has the power to perform miracles. And then last week we talked about how um, he has the power to command creation and calm the storms of the world. And today we're talking about how he has the power to save sinners. Because, Because that is the gospel story. Guys, from the beginning, God pursuing sinners is the story. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. So in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, God created us in his image. Chapter 2, it shows how he breathed the Spirit into us. He brought us to life, not just physically, but spiritually. That's the first couple of pages of your Bible, and it doesn't last long. And then you turn the page to to the third page of your Bible, and all of a sudden, kabam! The rebellion comes. Right, And so so we have this, this... Immediately the image is marred, but and immediately things like guilt and shame and death enter the world because we rebelled. It's not God's fault. He wasn't shocked by it, but he didn't cause it to happen. We did that. Why? Because even though we're made in his image, we want to be our own God. It was true in the garden. It's still true in Doug's life today, and it's true in your life too. And if you're sitting here today going, it's not true in mine, just start there. Because that's pride. All of us struggle with that. But here's the beauty. Even in chapter 3, instantly at the rebellion, God pursues them. Where are you, Adam? Who shamed you, Adam? Who told you you were naked? Did you do the thing that I told you not to do? Are you trying to cover your shame now? Let me cover it for you. And that's the whole rest of the Old Testament story. So we get to things like the, uh, the histories, the, the Samuels and the Kings and, the, and the, the Chronicles. And what we see is how God is taking the story of how he's going to restore the image of his people from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob, um, had one of his sons is Joseph. He uses Joseph to get his, the family of God into Egypt at 70. He uses Ma- uh, Moses to lead them out of Egypt as um, as. Two million people, 400 years later, all a picture of his redemptive story. And, but what he's, all of that, and, then, he, and then, he's, then they establish a kingdom. They have a land, they have a constitution, they have a king. You have people like King Saul, King David, Solomon. And all of that, guys, is just a picture of, um, of his redeeming us and our rebellion cycling over and over and over. Like That, that is the ongoing story. And you say, well, what does any of that have to do with where we are in Matthew. Well, here's the answer. Because even though he sends the prophets, and, and, and our Old Testaments end with the prophets, it starts with um, like pro- the prophet Isaiah, and it ends with the prophet Malachi, that's not how the Old Testament was in the day of, Ma- of, the day of um, when Matthew wrote his gospel, or the day that Jesus lived. All those books were in the Bible, were in their Old Testament, were in their Bible, but their Bible ended with Second Chronicles. Why does that matter? Because here's what, here's what the, the last scene, the, the world that Jesus was born into, the world the Pharisees grew up in, that we're going to look at today, was a world of just utter despair and darkness. At the end of Second Chronicles, 400 years before Christ 
comes, about 400 years before Christ comes, the last king, King Zedekiah, his, he is, he is the, the last king of Judah. He's a mess of a man. He rebels against God. Most, most of the kings of that, of that period did. The ten northern tribes have already been consumed by Assyria. God raises up the Babylonians. Zedekiah does not obey them or God. So, so Nebuchadnezzar comes, has Zedekiah's Children slaughtered in front of him, then gouges out both of his eyes and takes him away to be a slave. So their king is gone. Oh, by the way, what else do the Babylonians do, guys? They destroy the temple. The temple that Solomon had built. The, the Babylonians destroy the temple. And, and they do that because mostly because they're greedy and they want the gold, but also because they, they don't want God's people worshiping God, and that's where worship of God happened. And oh, by the way, in the, by the, way, in the meantime, the priests have all been idol worshipers and, and, and or are now slaves in Babylon. So, so here's how the Old Testament ends in the time of Christ. Here's the, here's the Bible they had. No king. A temple that had been rebuilt but is a sad reflection of the temple that was there when Solomon lived. In fact, in fact, the people that were still alive when the temple was rebuilt, and I won't go, if you took Old Testament history here, you know why the temple was allowed to be rebuilt, but the temple is rebuilt. It's a sad reflection of what the temple was. In fact, the people that saw it didn't rejoice, they wept. They wept because they were sad, because it was just, it was so, it paled in comparison. They're like, this is what we've become. So they have no king, they have a sad excuse for a temple, and their priests are all corrupt. That's the world that Jesus is born into. But guys, who's coming? Christ. Who's the king? Christ. Who's the priest? Christ. Guys, who's the temple? Jesus. He says in John chapter 2, you, they don't know what he's talking about, even his disciples don't know what he's talking about, but, but he says in John chapter 2, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about himself. Not the temple that was in existence when Herod was king. So, so God has primed his people at the time of Christ's first coming, the time of redemption. He's primed his people to be desperate for the king to come. Now guys, let's, okay, so what does any of that have to do with us today? So, but one, do you see why Matthew starts the way he does? He starts with, hey, here is the genesis of Christ, who is the king. It's why we've spent the, the, all the 20-something weeks now just driving home the point that Jesus is proving his authority as king. But it's because God has orchestrated human history to this place of going, my people need to be desperate for the coming of the king. But we know as Christians, he's coming again. And they should have too. It, it was, it's prophesied about in, their, in the Old Testament. But guys, think about it in our context. What is God doing in the world today? He's priming his, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation from, from chapter 6 to chapter 18 is all really about God trying to wake his people up. Because the end is coming. Restoration is assured. And only those who have bowed their knee to Christ willingly are going to be in that new heaven and that new earth. So all the rest of Revelation is God going, wake up world. Because he's priming. What, what is God doing in the world today? He's priming his people. He's priming us to be ready for his second coming. 
And we can either walk through this life just being consumed in the things of this world. Not whether they're good or bad, just in the busyness of life. Or we can stop and, and reconfigure our priorities. Because if we don't, if we don't do it now, we will be just as guilty as the mass of God's people in the Old Testament that missed Jesus coming the first time. Guys, God is still in the business of redemption. He is still in the business of saving sinners. And he does it through Jesus Christ. So today, what we're going to look at in this idea of how, how Jesus has the power to save sinners is how does Jesus express this power over sin in our world? Right? Well, one, he is the culmination of the plan. All that stuff I just talked about, that's Jesus. Like, all of the Old Testament is just a, is just a prep and a picture of Christ's redemption when he comes. But he is also the canceler of the sin. He is the companion of the sinner. And he is the commissioner of the mission. Like all of those things are what Matthew is trying to show us even in this one little section of scripture. Guys, if you, get nothing, if you hear nothing else out of any time we're gathering together here in this place in particular, but any time we gather as a body of believers at Cross Train, guys, get this. It's all about Jesus, all of it, right? Our prayer time, our music, our time in the word, our time at his table, our time of fellowship before and after. Our, guys, when, when you go take a meal to somebody in need, that is serving them, but it's serving the king. What does he say? When did we ever give you a glass of water? When did we feed you when you were hungry? He says, when you did it for the needy, the least of these, you did it to me. That's him talking about himself as the king. So God goes silent for 400 years. And that's where Matthew starts. That's where the gospel, according to Matthew, really begins. So let's take a look at this first of the real points of the message. So how does Jesus express his power over sin? Well, one, he is the culmination of the story, but he is the canceler of sin. It is him. He is the one who's paid our debt. And guys, before you go, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. I'm sitting in church on Sunday. We preach the gospel all the time here. Guys, don't let the familiarity with the message cause you to tune out. Not just because we all, because as I think it was Adam who prayed, not, none of us are grace graduates. We all need to be reminded of our need for grace. But at the same time, guys, understand that the that, that, the better we get at knowing God's message of grace, the better we get at sharing God's message of grace. So, so if you're sitting here today going, I don't, I, uh, this is just another message about the gospel and about forgiveness. One, maybe we ought to talk because your heart's probably not in a very good place right now. We should pray together at least. But two, guys, take it from a place of not just what, is the, what, is, what does this message have for me because I understand all of this, but how might this message be used by God in your life to share it with other people? Like, like we got to stop thinking about, you didn't show up here just for you. You showed up here for the king, and the king has a mission. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's keep going. So let's look at how he is the canceler of the sin. So we're in Matthew. We're finally, after I don't know how many weeks, it's been 20-something weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I mean, it's been longer in that period of time because we took some breaks, but, but we're finally in Matthew chapter 9. We're so we're finally here, and, and here is ultimately um, 
where we, so where he starts. In Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, And getting into a boat, they crossed over and came to his own city. Now his own city was not his place of birth, Bethlehem. His own city was not even his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up. His, his hometown, or his, his city, was Capernaum. We saw it a few weeks ago. Um, that was sort of where he set up base for his, when he was in the northern part of Israel, he would hang out in Capernaum. So when it says he was in his city, that's ultimately all that's describing. Right? And then it says, and behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now here's what's interesting. Matthew skips a lot of the details that Luke and Mark pick up on. You're going to read a little bit in Mark and Luke this week about this, but but part of why Matthew doesn't pick up on the details, so for example, here all Matthew says is, and they brought to him a paralytic who was lying on a bed. Luke talks about how the house was full, like it was standing room only. It was not just standing room only full of a bunch of sinners that wanted to be healed. It was also, Luke talks about how the Pharisees had come from as far away as Jerusalem, which is 70 miles south, in order to hear Jesus so they could confront him, and they're in the room. So this sick man who needs healing, can, his friends cannot get him into the room because all the religious people are taking up the space. So he, Matthew skips all of that. They skip the part where they can't get in the front door. So what do they do? They, carry, they put him up on the roof and they, and they take some tiles off of what was probably like an inner courtyard. Back in that day, the homes were not like ours most of the time because, because it got hot there and they didn't have air conditioning. Um, most of the time, the, the houses were built kind of in a square and in the middle was just an open courtyard area which is probably where Jesus would have been meeting because it was probably the biggest area of the, of the home. So they take some tiles off and they lower them down. Matthew skips all of that. Why? Because Matthew's not interested. What is Matthew's point in writing? He wants to show Jesus as the king. Jesus is preeminent. Luke shares all those details because Luke is a physician. He cares a great deal about people. He, so he writes a lot of human details. Matthew's like, it didn't really matter. Here's what mattered. Here's the point. He, they bring him a paralytic who, by the way, in that world, I mean, being a paralytic in any time in human history would be horrible, but it would be way worse here. There were no scooters. There was no handicapped parking spaces. There was none of that. Right? There was no help. I mean, to be a paralytic in their world was not, was not only a, a just a time like ultimate suffering, but you were also, in, in their culture, what they believed is you were cursed of God. This happened to you because you've done something wrong. So, so, so now not only are you fit, so that he even had friends that loved him this much, speak something of this man. Because in the most, most of the time in that world, paralytics would have just been like ostracized. But, but he says, so, um, so he, this paralytic comes in on the bed, then it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Quick question, is that what the man came for? Did he come to have his sins forgiven? We don't even have any idea that he thought there were any to be forgiven of. He came for healing. Now, if you're living as a paralytic in that culture where it's so, where like, like your world is, your life is, is incredibly hard and lonely, and the guy you came that you believe is, can heal you says, your sins are forgiven, my guess is this dude was disappointed. He's like, yeah, but whoa, 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 what, what? He's not, like, we read that now as New Testament believers with hindsight, and we go, oh, man, that's a sweet moment. But this guy probably doesn't even know, one, that he needs forgiveness, and if he does, he's not thinking this is the place he would go to get forgiveness of sin. 
Where you go for forgiveness of sin is, at the, is to the temple. Or at the very least, if you're in the northern part of Israel, a tavern or um, a synagogue where there's an altar where you can make a sacrifice. There's none of that in this home. And so he looks at him and he says, your take heart, your sins are forgiven. And, and I think this guy is like, yeah, but, but wait, what? Really? That's not, that's not what I need help with. Guys, but think about that from our context. How often do we come to Jesus for stuff? For stuff. I need help with this part of my life. I, if, if, if this part of my life would just be better. Even, even stuff like if you would just give me victory over this besetting sin. If you, guys, without, just, without coming to him just for him. But here's what's interesting. It says, seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my sins are forgiven. Do you remember the, the scene a couple weeks ago with the centurion? When, when, he says, when he says, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Here's the thing. These four dudes, the, the paralytic and his three friends, at the very least, they, this is the kind of, this wasn't we have faith in healing. Just like, with the, just like with the centurion, this was we have faith in who Jesus is. They went to all that trouble for their friend because they believed, they, they didn't know like, his full identity, but they believed who he was, who he says he was. That's where their faith is. So they're going, whatever happens here, we, we, we are compelled by Jesus to come to him. So they're like, like let's, they're, the friends are going, let's just get our friend to Christ. And that's what we should be doing. With, we should be just leading people to the foot of the Lord and letting him do the work. So look at verse 3. It says, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Well, guys, think, before we beat up on the Pharisees again, which we, we do a lot of, rightfully so, think about this. In their world, no, there's no temple, no synagogue, no sacrifice, no priest. So this isn't just, like, wait a minute. What, like, like, they might have heard a man say something about forgiving sin, but it was only in the context of because of a sacrifice that was made. Because they were, because they were giving their sacrifices at the altar, and, and they were trying to receive some sort of absolution. None of that has happened. All that has happened is this guy is laid down in front of him, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, wait a minute. None of our religious activity has taken place yet. That can't be possible. And then it says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, guys, why does God have to be the one to forgive sin? Because he's the only one who can. What does that mean? Okay, he's sinless. Right, our sins, guys, who are our sins against? Him. When, when, when David writes his, his, one of his great psalms about the sins with Bathsheba, he says, against you, you and you alone have I sinned. Wait a minute, you, you, you used your authority to make this woman come into your bedroom, and then you followed it up by killing her husband. And, and yet you have the audacity to say, against you and you alone have I sinned? Well, the reality is, yes. In the grand scheme of things, our sins are against God. Now, if I have sinned against you, if I have sinned against Michael, I might come to him and say, Michael, I'm sorry for that. Will you please forgive me for the fact that I did this? And he can choose to forgive me to the point that, that Jeff was bringing up. Forgiveness is something that does work horizontally. Absolutely. But, but Michael cannot forgive, um, cannot forgive me. Or, like, we can't have that exchange for a sin that Jeff committed on me. 
Because the only, sin, the only thing that Michael can forgive is something that happened to him. So the reason God has to be the one to forgive is because all sin is against him. So he's the one who has to forgive. That's what all of this Old Testament story is about. He's showing, hey, you want to try to earn my forgiveness? Let me show you what that looks like. And it's going to wear you out. So then that leads to their desperate need for Christ, just like it should for us as well. But guys, this man came for a physical healing. God heals him, or Jesus heals him spiritually because Jesus starts with the, the, the primary one first, the, 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 the greatest need first. And this man's greatest need was not to walk again. That would have made his temporal, his present life better, but his eternity would have been horrible. If all that happens to you, if, and we do pray for healing here, if all that happens to you is you get healed physically but not spiritually, we've done nothing Nothing. We've made a few years of your life better and done nothing for your eternity. Jesus is saying, hey, your eternal soul is at stake here. That's what I'm focused on. The physical healing part's not that big a deal. Now look what he says in verse 5. He says, for what is easy, so, so they're questioning him. He's like, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? Well, what is that about? Well, here's what it's about. In that moment, man laid down in front of him. If Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, who can, I mean, they can challenge him for blasphemy, and they did. Can they challenge whether it worked or not? No, because there's no proof. There's no tangible proof that the man's sins are forgiven. If he says, get up and walk, and he stands the man up, and the man falls back down, because he didn't heal him physically, much bigger issue. So Jesus, what Jesus is saying when he says, what's easier? He's saying, what's easier to do? For, say, I forgive your sins, which none of you could prove either way, or to say, stand up and walk. And then he's going to go on to say, in our, next, in our next point, he's like, but so that you would know that I can forgive sin, that's why I said it the, in the order that I said it in. And also because, they're, also because their theology was way out of whack as well. But, but guys, I can't even remember who wrote this, but I, wrote, I read, originally wrote this, but I wrote this down, so I apologize for not giving them credit, but it's, he, he said this, forgiveness is humanity's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Forgiveness is, man, is humanity's deepest, like your, your deepest need as a human is to be forgiven and to live in that forgiveness. That's what, we, that's what our prayer time so beautifully led us into. That's what our songs that we sang so beautifully reminded us of, is that the blood of Christ does that. It's, our, it's, the great, it's, it's God's highest achievement. I don't know that we really believe that. I don't, I don't know that, that we really think that, I, I think we think it's, it's sort of, yeah, okay, thank you for that forgiveness, God. Now, let's, now, now what else? And we move past it so rapidly. And God's, and God's like, no, this is the thing. So now look at what he says in verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. So this is the whole point of the story. Isn't the healing of the paralytic. The point of the story is, is what Matthew is doing now. See, remember, we talked about how he's, how he's unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. He healed the centurion slave. He healed the leper. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He calmed the storms. He's cast out demons. He's showing, I have power and authority over all these things. Now he's saying, I want to prove to you that as king, I have authority over sin. So that's why Matthew shares this scene here. 
The way he's like, I, I, to prove to you that I have authority, stand up and walk. And he does. And the people are astounded and frightened and terrified and all the things. So we keep going. He says, and he rose and he went home. That must have been a crazy scene, actually. Like, hey, thanks for that. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God um, who had given such authority to men. Guys, do you see how what verse 6 does? I'm sorry, what verse 8 does? You, you, they've um, given authority to men. What, what, what seems implied in that statement about Jesus according, in the eyes of the people that are in the room? Okay, he did it. We can't, so, so like men, it's almost like this, like the equal thing, right? What else? Are they, are they saying, like, are they affirming his authority, like, as, as God? No. Right. And they're suggesting that God gave it to men or man or to him. Instead of going, what, here's what they, they did. They missed Jesus. He's in the room. He sets up this whole thing. He, he forgives the sin, performs a miracle, and they walk away going, wow, that was an amazing thing. But they don't walk away going, he is God. Right? That's the difference. Who is, guys, the, the question of life is who is Christ? That's the question of life and death. Who is Christ? Is he a good moral teacher? Is he a helper? Is he your personal counselor? Is he your life coach? Or he is, is he the savior who redeems? Because he is the God of all creation. He's not a God, he is the God. So in that regard, they are right. They, when they say he's, they've, like, they, they're glorifying God, they're just not seeing Jesus as God. He has given authority. Guys, Jesus himself said it this way in John chapter 8. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that ego ami, unless you believe that I am. The whole thing is what do you believe about Christ? That's what Matthew's trying to drive us to. That's what this message is about. That's what this scene is about is what do you believe about Christ? Do you believe he is a God who forgives? Now, Look at your second talking points question. In light of all of that, why is it so hard for us to live in the unconditional forgiveness of God? Because we know how unworthy we are. Okay, absolutely. That was, that was beautifully confessed, even like in Romans 7, what Adam read. Like, so, but but why, why does that cause us to not believe in the forgiveness of God? Okay, but that's a symptom of the problem, Jan. Why do, why do we believe the symptom, the, the unworthiness we feel is a symptom or is a product of us not believing that God forgives? Why is it so hard for us? Pride, Pride why? Yeah, we, we want to own our struggle. Like, like we, we, 
We feel, and it goes back to Jan's point about being undeserving, is this idea of, of, yeah, but God, you don't really know everything that I've done. Or yeah, you do know what I've done, and that's why at the very least, I need to, be, I need to continue to do some things to earn your forgiveness. Right? That's, the, that's the anti-gospel. We don't do to earn anything. We do because Christ did. That's the point. Guys, the God who wants nothing and needs nothing gives everything to those of us that have nothing. The God who wants nothing and needs some, nothing gives everything to us, those of us, that's all of us, who have nothing. That's who God is. It's not what he does. Right? He, he is love. Love isn't a thing that he does. He is grace. And, and we have such a hard time believing that because we, because we want to own, we, we want to hang on to our stuff too much. We're the center of our story. That's the problem. Okay, so we got to keep moving. How does Jesus express the power to overcome the sin of the world? One, he is the canceler of the sin. He's a companion of the sinner. And this is the scene where he actually calls the author of this book. And it goes pretty, pretty, pretty fast. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, so I'm in, chap- I'm in verse 9 of chapter 9, he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and, um, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Well, one, so, just, so, so, notice, so notice this one. In that, in that time, the, tax collect- the only thing that would be about at the same level of a tax collector as far as um, a sinner in the eyes of the Jewish people would have been a prostitute. And they both end up in the house with Jesus, by the way. But a sinner would have been considered a traitor in every sense of the word. A traitor spiritually, a traitor politically. So Matthew is, is, is like the enemy. Now here's what you notice. Does Matthew come to Jesus? Jesus comes to Matthew. Just like, he, just like, Jesus, just like God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. He comes to Matthew and he says, hey, come follow me. Now, guys, understand, whether it's this scene where he says, come follow me, and it says that Matthew left everything, or the scene where he calls Andrew and Peter or James and John, Jesus is not a Jedi. He doesn't, he's not like, follow me. Right? And they're like, okay, I'll follow. Right? They follow him because Matthew has been in this area. He's heard about Christ. He's probably even watched some of the things that are going on. He's... He's interacted at some distant level with Jesus and has come to some belief that Jesus is who he says he is. So when Jesus makes the invitation, it's like, okay, here we go. It was, and that was true for all of the disciples. He wasn't playing mind games with them. He was actually, just like he does with us. But understand, look, look what happens next. It says, um, and, and he followed him. And he, so he rose from the table and he followed him. Guys, All that's really happening in this scene is Matthew is answering the specific call of grace. There is a general call of grace that goes out to all the world. Right? It's it's why the sun came up today. Right? there's There's the common grace. But there's also a specific call. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And and in that moment, Matthew, in that specific call of grace, could have rejected it, and he doesn't because his faith in who Christ is leads him into his part of that journey, which is the response. But make no mistake, who, guys, at a word, Jesus calms the storm. At a word, 
Jesus heals the leper. At a word, Jesus raises the dead. And that's ultimately what happens to the paralytic, and it's what's going to happen to Matthew. He's raising these spiritually dead people to life at a word. And we need to remember that, that, that his call is effective. Okay, keep going. Verse 10. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus at the table. And the Pharisees saw this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But guys, so, so two things. I want to st stop and think about this for a minute. If you're Peter, James, and John, and what we know about them from other gospel writings and stuff, you're losing your mind at this point. You have chosen to follow Jesus. You're still pretty young in this whole process of following him. They don't really know exactly who he is yet. And, and, and he's collecting disciples. And you're like, of course you're going to pick somebody with some power, some clout, maybe a little like people like him in the community. Because if we can get some of those people to come, then other people will come with them. And instead, Jesus does just like, he does the extreme opposite. He picks the scum of the earth. And, he, and then he goes and sits with them. I mean, Peter and James, they must have just been like, what in the world? Now, let me, let me take it off of Peter, James, and John for a minute. What group of people would you see Jesus sitting with where you'd have that same attitude? Okay, yeah, if you're holy, us. But if you're real, if you're real, I'm not being insulting. I'm just saying I get it. But guys, in, your, in, your, in, in the deepest part of your soul, who are the people that if you walked by and you saw me, because maybe you're like, okay, well, Jesus, it doesn't really matter you know, who, who it is. If, it's, if I know it's Jesus, it doesn't matter. I get it, and that's a great answer. But let's say you see, you see your pastor sitting with a group of fill in the blank. Right? Who, who are we going to stop and go, what in, how in the world? Like, what is going on? He's lost his mind. What a hypocrite. What a whatever. That's what they're doing here. Now, guys, the, the healthy, holy response is, there, but therefore the grace of God go I. Absolutely, that's true. But, guys, to say that in a moment like of, of flesh, you don't stop and go, yeah, not those people. We, we shouldn't be hanging out with those people. Who are those people to you? Because we all have them. And if you don't, I, man, please come talk to me. Because I want to know how you don't. Because it, it it's probably possible that you are just that magnanimous. But I struggle. And I'll just tell you that I struggle. So look at your last talking points question. It goes along with what we are just talking about. Think about people you know personally. And also, like, that are maybe part of the cultural moment that we're in. The people that drive you crazy and make you angry. Do they deserve salvation any less than you? I'm not asking for answers. Because the, the answer is obvious, right? So who's going to tell them? So who's going to tell them? Guys, if the church gets so busy ostracizing, like, like separating ourselves, I, I get we, don't, we want to be in but not of the world, but we want to be in but not of the world. But if we get so busy tribing up around our people for the sake of our own protection, 
Who's going to tell the world about the best news in the whole world? Who's doing that? Do we really believe he's coming back? Do we really believe that when he comes back, he's going to restore all things? His kingdom is coming. His will, but do, do, and do we really believe that at that time, it's too late? Or, or are we just like, man, I put on my parachute. I'm ready for the crash landing. Just let this thing happen and let the world go to hell. Literally. But, but all of that comes back to a couple of quick questions. Do you believe, personally, that Jesus wants to be with you? Like, do you really believe that? Because if you don't really believe that, Je- that Jesus wants to be with you like he wanted to be with Matthew and the prostitutes and, Matthew and the other tax collectors in Matthew's home, then you're going to really struggle to invite other people into that moment. Part of our struggle is, back to the whole unforgiveness thing that I was talking about in our last Talking Points question, was this idea of, like, because, because I struggle to feel fully accepted. I don't invite people, especially people that I might think, eh, I'm not sure he, I'm not even positive he would accept them. Right? If I have that sort of mindset, but I don't, I'm not going to invite them in. So, so for me, I, we have to stop and go, okay, one, do I believe that Jesus wants to be with me? Do you, here's where I, I say to my classes. Do you, do you believe Jesus loves you? Yeah, most of us do. Do you believe Jesus likes you? Yeah, sometimes. See, that's the thing. And thank you for being honest, because that's me. That's totally me. I have no problem believing Jesus loves me, because the cross proves it. I have a really hard time believing Jesus likes me right now. And because of that, why am I going to invite in people that I don't like? Right? That's the thing. So, so, do you, so the last part of that would be, so you believe Jesus loves you? Do you believe Jesus likes you? Do you believe Jesus wants to be with you? Do you believe that Jesus wants to be with the people you don't like? Like that's, that, that ultimately, guys, Jesus died for all kinds of people. Everywhere. Tribe, tongue, nation. Every problem, every seat. Like it, we have got to stop limiting his grace. Because that's what we're ultimately doing. Okay, so, our, so, so he is the canceler of the sin. He's also the companion of the sinner. But guys, and get this, and this is where I was just hammering home and, and where we're going to finish up. And to prove that we're finishing up, I'm going to invite the music team to come up. And guys, he is also the one um, who commissions us in the mission. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn where, from where we are and turn to the, la- the last part of, of Matthew chapter, of, of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. If you've been here for any length of time at Cross Train, you know that um, you probably know this verse almost by heart because it's our sending passage very often, not every Sunday, but often, and there's a purpose for that. The reason we keep repeating it over and over is because repetition brings, um, brings sometimes will bring, bring along belief. So here's the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. So think about this. If this is the mission Christ has called us to, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. All authority on heaven and earth. That's his way of saying all authority everywhere at all times has been given to me. Therefore, in light of my authority, we're only in nine chapters of his authority. We got another, um, what, 19 to go? Right? To go. Uh, Talking about his authority. He's saying all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Not go and make converts. Not go and make friends. Not not even go, go and make enemies. Go and make political parties. Go and make clubs. Go and make, it says go and make disciples. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to baptize them. 
teaching them to observe, and then we're supposed to teach them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then here's the beautiful promise. We all, we all want this part. We all want verse 20, but we don't really want to do verses 18 and, or verse 19. And lo, or and behold, I am with you always, all the days. Right, man, we, man, we sure love us a little, and I want him with me all the days. Because that promise is directly attached to the go. Go and make disciples. Guys, like it or not, in the crazy scheme of gospel glory, you are God's plan to take the best news of the world and the best news that, that the world needs to the world. It's the only plan he's got. Guys, we're it. I mean, literally, just let that sink in for a minute. If you really believe the gospel, if you really believe Jesus is who he says he is, and he's done what he said he's done, and he is the only hope of salvation, and you're the only tool God is going to use to take that message to the world, that should change everything about what we do, about how we live. These three brothers to this paralytic man literally moved a roof to get their brother in front of Christ. I don't want to walk across the coffee shop and tell somebody about Jesus. That's just not right. Because apart from Christ, that person is doomed. So if not you, who? And if not now, when? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you, Lord, for um, that beautiful truth that you are a pursuing, saving God. And I thank you, too, for the truth that, that you said at the end of this gospel, that, that the way you pursue the sinner is through us. We are just people in need of grace, telling other people they need grace. We are beggar, beggars telling other beggars who the bread of life is. We are those who are thirsty, saying, drink from the fountain of living water to those who are dying of dehydration. So Lord, help us to just keep the gospel before us in our own lives, being reminded that we are fully, freely, forever forgiven, and also in our mouths, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.